0: We've been talking about the temptations that Jesus went through before his ministry the last couple of weeks. Today we're going to finish that up. The question is, and a couple of you have asked me this question, why did Jesus have to go through these temptations? Why is that even there? Jesus didn't really have to put up with that. If we think about who Jesus is, and uh, he's the incarnate Word of God. Come into the world? Why does he have to go out and be tempted by the tempter? Why does he have to go through that at all? It's kind of an interesting question. And what we see in the temptations of Jesus is a very human side of Jesus. We see Jesus walking through temptations that all of us have to walk through. He's dealing with things that all of us have to deal with. Specifically, some people would say all three temptations, we're going to talk specifically about the third one, uh, in some ways come around the use of power, and that it's Jesus before he gets any power, before he uses any power, having to deal with what it looks like to be given power and then to steward it well, not to misuse it, not to abuse the power that you have, which is so powerful. I would go as far to say this, that if Jesus couldn't master the three temptations that he mastered in the wilderness before his ministry, public ministry started, that we probably wouldn't have a Palm Sunday or an Easter weekend, I'll show you what I mean. Um, On Palm Sunday, there were two parades that we might expect. At the time of Passover, Passover, think about Passover for a second. The Jewish people, and if you're in the first century, it's a pretty tense environment. So the Romans kind of in charge of everything. And then you have the Jewish people uh, who sort of feel like they have just a little bit of freedom, but then not really because the Romans are overseeing everything that they have and they have to be uh, subservient to them in most ways. Um, And then Passover comes. And for the Jewish people, Passover is a celebration of when their ancestors were slaves in Egypt. And then God, through Moses, calls them out of Egypt, out of their slavery, away from the people who were enslaving them, using them as just workers to do everything that they wanted to do, and led them into the desert and then eventually into the promised land. So this is a time where these people are celebrating that God will save us from our oppressors. But now, Rome is seen as the oppressor. Rome is the oppressor. So the Jewish people are celebrating a time where God miraculously overthrows the oppressor. And Rome goes, hmm, that could get dangerous for us. Because if these people really celebrate Passover, and they really believe that their God brought their ancestors out of slavery and into freedom, they might start to get ideas, that they could do it again. They might start to get ideas that their God could now throw over the Roman government. And if they start to believe that, we could have a revolt on our hands. They could rise up and try and overthrow our government. And we do not want to have that happen. So when the Jewish people had certain uh, celebrations, like Passover, where they would celebrate those kind of things, the Roman government would go, hmm, they might get some ideas of revolution. And so we need to make sure that they don't do anything crazy. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning of what it looks like for Jesus to come in uh, on a donkey, a procession, a parade into Jerusalem. That's Palm Sunday. But you need to know there was another parade at the same time because Pilate, who was in charge of this area, would also parade into Jerusalem. Pilate had a, a, a palace, a, a beautiful place, um, in the west of the city, at a place called Caesarea on the Sea. We read that Jesus, when he comes in on Palm Sunday to Jerusalem, comes from the east. But Pilate would have come from the west. And Pilate would have had a military-style procession or parade. He would have come in on a big war horse. He would have come in with other troops. He would have come in armed and ready. Sometimes nations, presidents, leaders of countries still do this today. They have military processions and parades. They have their jets fly over. They have their tanks roll. They have all kinds of uh, military personnel and troops that are dressed up in their uniforms and they march and they parade. And one of the things that they're doing when they do that is just showing off a little bit. Here's our military. Here's our power. Here's who we are. If anybody wants to come get us, just be careful because look, look at our tanks, look at our weapons, look at our, uh, our, our jets and all the rest of it. Well, the Romans did the same thing. So for Pilate, he would come on a, a war horse with a cavalry, foot shoulders, leather army, metal and gold weaponry. They're rich, they're wealthy, they're strong. You would hear the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the crinking of brides, beating of drums. And people would stop and be in awe. They'd either be impressed or they would be scared. But Pilate would make his presence known. Don't get any ideas. We're in charge. We rule the world that you know. And Rome did rule the world. And their leaders... They legitimized by calling them things like the Son of God, the Lord and Savior, the ones who bring peace on earth. You can read in all the history books about Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And Rome promised that they would bring peace to the whole known world. And the way they did that was through domination. Get in line. Do what we tell you to do, and everything will be fine or else. They wielded political power where ordinary people didn't get a voice, the powerful and wealthy people called all the shots. They had economic power, where the laws were set up to tax those ordinary farmers mostly and benefit the already wealthy. They had religious power. Things are the way they are in the world because we are the ordained leadership by God. And so here's Pilate parading from the west into the city to make sure everybody knew it. But on Palm Sunday from the east, there was another parade on the foal of a donkey, not a war horse, an animal of peace from the prophecy found in Zechariah 9, chapter chapter 9, verse 9, a prophetic text that says Jesus or the the Messiah will come uh, to bring true peace. And here's just a couple of things from Matthew 21 about that story. Jesus had told his disciples to go ahead and get a donkey, and they're trying to get clued in, but they don't really know what's going on. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, which means save us, to the son of David, the king, the promised king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Spreading cloaks, as they did uh, on the ground, was uh, a sign of deference or honor. Uh, They would spread their their garments as kind of an act of submission or paid to royalty. There's actually other places in scripture this happens where they would put down their coats. because The king is coming. The branches are interesting. There's a couple of places we get little pictures of what those palm branches look like. But there was actually a Jewish revolt uh, not too far in the history, uh, you know, 100-something years before Jesus, um, where these people, they called themselves the Hammer, uh, the Jewish people rose up and and tried to overthrow the government. And they actually uh, used the palm branches as a sign of victory, and they actually stamped it on their coins, uh, to remember this time that we won, that we conquered, that, that, that our military might was enough. And so you have people with all kinds of expectations crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. And waving the palm branches, hoping they could have a Messiah. Maybe some of them thinking that it will be just like the hammer that came before and overthrew the ones that we were struggling under. But they called, save us, save us. And here's Jesus in the midst of it. And it's going to be this moment where he will, in the next week, as it goes to Easter and the cross, he will upset all the expectations that so many people had for him. That everything that people thought he was going to be, thought they need in order to be saved, Jesus would show them something different. And Holy Week starts as Jesus parades into the city from the opposite side of Pilate. And as Pilate comes with riches and power and might, Jesus comes on a donkey with really nothing, no, no weapons, no money, no military, and the people will call out, "Save us! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord." Go back to our temptations of Jesus. Uh, many people see in the temptations of Jesus, why does Jesus go out into the desert? Uh, why does he go through these temptations? What's going on here? Many commentators notice that this looks an awful lot like what a lot of cultures do in terms of initiation rites, where they take uh, young adults and they spend time outside of their current culture, outside of their current world. Uh, they go out somewhere where there's quiet, where there's uh, maybe nature, um, and, and there's this this process of them sometimes, like Jesus, there's fasting involved, where they say, "I'm giving up some of the comforts and even needs of my everyday life in order uh, to go deeper and to find what it is." That find what it is." God wants to give to me and speak to me and experience, and that's where Jesus uh, takes on these temptations, takes on the temptations that he has to conquer. And it's so important, I think, that Jesus in some ways is being initiated, starting with his baptism, where he hears the voice of the Father proclaiming that he is the beloved son and that God loves him and enjoys him, and then he goes out and he's tested. And uh, all through, we've we've seen two temptations, and we'll see the third today. Uh, They're a little bit different, but some commentators will notice that really the common thread is about the temptation to abuse or misuse power in one way or another. So the first week we talked about production, what you can earn, what you can build. Maybe it's riches, maybe it's stuff, maybe it's achievements. And that maybe we can build a life out of all those things that we can do, do, do. And yet Jesus accepts the presence of God speaking to him and strengthening him in everyday life. Last week we talked about Popularity. And the idea that maybe it's, about, maybe it's about building a following and maybe it's about the applause and maybe it's about everybody saying how great we are and if we can look spectacular and like we have it all together, then maybe we can build a life on that. And Jesus says, uh, no, that's not the way either. And today we come to the third temptation. And these are all temptations that if he doesn't conquer, I don't think he's going to be able to, to proceed in his ministries. One of the greatest temptations that we all face is when we feel like we're losing control to replace love with power. And I think this is the third temptation of Jesus. I'm going to tell you what I mean. Let me read the temptation and we'll talk about it. It's Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 8. It says again, The devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So here the devil takes him to the high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he promises him that he could have power. All you have to do is worship me, and you can be in charge of everything. You can have all of this. You can get your way. Remember that uh, temptations are not the reason why we're tempted by certain things. Are not that, that they're bad and we shouldn't do them, but oh, something in us wants to do something bad. The, the The hardest temptations for us to resist are not bad things; they're good things, and the temptation is to misuse them or abuse them. They're things that almost work. That's how addictions work, by the way. Oh, this substance, this thing, this person, it it makes me feel a certain way and it brings me to a certain point. It almost works to give me what I think I need. It almost works to make me happy. It almost works to give me that sense that my life is successful and everything. And the things that are so tempting are not the bad things in life. They're the things that are good that we make ultimate. So the devil brings him up and he goes, all of these kingdoms. And some of us would say, isn't Jesus supposed to take over? Wouldn't it be beautiful and wonderful if Jesus takes over the world? But that is the temptation. The temptation is to take over, to not just have power, but to misuse power, to go about it the wrong way. I can give all of you, all this to you, all these kingdoms, and all you have to do is worship me. Jesus, I will give you all the power. But power offers an easy but inadequate substitute for love. See, Jesus did not come to bring a kingdom of power, a kingdom of dominance, a kingdom like the kingdom of Rome. He came to bring a kingdom of love, a different kind of way. And so it's not that Jesus' temptation is is you'll have a kingdom. Jesus comes, the first thing he does after the temptation, the very first words out of his mouth that are recorded for us in this gospel is that he will tell people to repent, which means to rethink everything, to go beyond what you currently think, and he announces the kingdom of God. But notice the kingdom of God, not just my kingdom, not just what I want, not my power. I'm here to announce that the reign of God is now available to you. The power of God is working in this world. And so the temptation is for, uh, the, to substitute power for love. The kingdom of God is going to come through love. It's going to come through service. It's not to be stolen, grasped. And that is the temptation. Temptation. Now you go, okay, that's great for Jesus, but what about us? Does that connect with anything in our lives? You know, some of us will go, I don't really have any power. What does that mean? And how am I supposed to use power and what's the temptation? Let me give you some examples of how power is an easy substitute for love and how so many of us are tempted to do that, to substitute power in for love. Okay, think about raising kids for a second. We love our kids. We want our kids to make good decisions. We want them to grow up and become good, productive adults that care for other people, that are kind, that that are productive, that that treat people well, whatever it is, that are respectful, whatever your values are that you're trying to teach your kids. But some of you are a lot further along than I am, but I've noticed it, I think we've all noticed it, there comes a point in time where your kids don't make good decisions. And maybe sometimes really painful parts. And there might come a time where as a parent you feel like, I've lost control. I've lost my influence. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. Now they're a teenager. Now they're a young adult. Now I'm really worried that, that I don't have the ability to tell them what to do like I did when they were two or three or five. I used to be able to just pick them up and take you know, go here, pick them up, go there. They don't have a say. It doesn't matter. But now all of a sudden they're a young adult and they're out there in the world and I'm scared that I don't have any control. And so what do we do? We substitute power For love, we start to go to the temptation that says, this love thing, I can't just love them. I've got to become heavy-handed. I've got to tell them what to do. I've got to try and keep control of them. And we do that in all kinds of different ways. Maybe it's trying to manage them with, you know, I'll give you so much money if you do this. Maybe it's just heaping rules upon them. Maybe it's just, you know, but it becomes this inappropriate, not just this, I care for you, but now even as you're an adult, I'm trying to control you. And it doesn't work, not for long. about a marriage? So think about it. When you trust each other, when there's openness and vulnerability, when you care for each other, when you feel like at least to a certain level, your needs are being met and their needs are being met and things are going well, and you go, we love each other, and there's this mutuality, and it's beautiful and wonderful. But there comes a time for a lot of people, maybe a season or maybe longer than that, where where the other person isn't treating you the way that you think you should be treated. Or where you kind of, you grow apart. Or where all of a sudden the trust is kind of broken and all of a sudden you go, I'm out of control. And what are we tempted to do? More power than love. So even in a marriage, it it might look like uh, manipulating or bullying. Trying to get back control of our lives and our relationship instead of going back and being open and vulnerable and building the platform for which you can actually live and grow together. What about politics? I don't even have to say anything, do I? You know anybody in politics that might be a little too control-focused? That all of a sudden it's not about the people that I'm trying to serve and, and lead, but it's about my agenda and what I want and seizing that power. Happens in business too, happens for a lot of us in the job place. We might call it career advancement, we might call it how we're running our business, but there's this idea that, that now it's about me and what I want, and I can't trust my workers, or I can't trust my co workers, but I have to have some form of control or power. Has it ever happened in religion? When churches want people to conform to their agenda exactly how they think that they should be, to serve their idea of a certain ideology, and the temptation for so many people, even if this starts out as well-meaning, the temptation to use things like guilt or shame, to ostracize people, to put up fences and barriers, uh, to threaten that you can be in or out based on whether or not you follow what we tell you to do. And all of a sudden, something that was supposed to be based on love and relationship and openness and vulnerability and trust becomes very controlling. Do you see how it's easy to substitute love or power for love when you feel out of control, when you want that influence back? There's a temptation that Jesus is dealing with. The devil says, I'll give you control. I'll give you power. Look at all the kingdoms. And yet the kingdom that Jesus has come to announce does not come in this demanding this, this, this oppressive way. That's the kingdom of Rome. Instead, it's going to come in love. And Jesus realizes that he can't cut any corners. He can't skip through the middle. He can't go around it. He can't go about uh, the kingdom, which might be right, in the wrong way. But to be honest, it's easier to try and control people than it is to love them. It is. It just doesn't lead anywhere healthy. It doesn't lead anywhere good. So how is it that Jesus responds to that temptation? How does he fight against the temptation to seize control and make sure everybody just does what he tells them to do? He says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, same chapter that he quoted earlier, another temptation. And it's a passage, again, contrasting Yahweh, who brought the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt, and Pharaoh, who is the leader of Egypt of the people, Pharaoh is a slave driver. Pharaoh is oppressive. Pharaoh is top-down. You have to do what I tell you to do because I am in control. And if you don't, there will be consequences. And what he's trying to teach in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses to the people, what he's trying to teach them over and over and over as they've left Egypt is you need to rethink who you are because you are no longer under Pharaoh. You don't serve a slave driver anymore. And it was so hard for them to get that out of their bones, to get it out of their souls, to realize that Yahweh is a loving God. Do you know one of the things, it's so so hard for us today too, that um, is often always brought back to, listen, Yahweh is not Pharaoh, is when they were trying to teach the people to take a Sabbath, take a day off every week and do nothing, don't do any work. They were so used to being worked to the bone, it was so hard for them to say, no, I can stop working and trust God. And the whole point is, your God is not Pharaoh. He's not oppressive. He's not demanding like that. He provides everything for you. We've talked about that the last couple weeks. You've got to learn to trust that. You serve a good God. He loves you and cares for you. He is not Pharaoh. And we need to learn the same lessons, to trust God, the God of love, a different way, not the way of um, domination. So when Jesus says, you'll worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, that's what he's going back to. And he's quoting that to try and reframe who God is and what it looks like to faithfully follow him. I'm not going to serve you. You say that you can give me power. Well, it's not about power. I trust in God who's going to show a different way, the way of love. Why is it, talk? Why is it worship? Why is it the God you serve? Why that quotation? Because we become what we worship. Slowly over time, whatever we think we need to worship, whatever we put on the pedestal, whatever our goal is, whatever we're driving for, whatever we're in awe of, whatever, whoever we think is God, is is in control, we're becoming like. If we worship Pharaoh, we enter into a system of slavery. And this is the temptation Jesus is trying to overthrow. I won't worship you. I won't worship this form of control and power. I worship a God of love. So there's no other way to go about the kingdom than love, than service. It can't come any other way. Power needs to be for the sake, if you have it, for other people's good. In a mature person, that's how it works, not for your own fame or your own gain. And this is what Jesus is working through. Do you understand how if if he can't work through that temptation, this very human side of Jesus that's tempted the way that we are tempted, that on Palm Sunday, Jesus can't parade in as a a poor peasant-like person on a a donkey that has no real power or authority. See, it's baked into who he is. He had to go through the temptation because that's what his ministry is going to look like. And even when he gets power, he's going to steward it in a way for others, not against others. So Jesus going through these initiation this temptation so that he can go through the ministry that proclaims the loving presence of God, the kingdom of God that comes. I can't worship you. I can't worship power because we become like what we worship. And Jesus needs to resist it. And we need to resist it. When we worship money, we become cold, transactional, always wanting more. That's what money's gonna take us if we worship. It's not bad, it just can't be worshiped. When we worship popularity, we end up uh, racking up likes on social media, I don't know, but being void of intimacy in relationships. When we worship power, we might become controlling. But when we worship God truly, when we see the God of love in the person of Jesus, we see the One who came in humility to serve, to care, and to love. And His character changes our character, changes who we are. And that's the temptation that we all need to avoid. We all need to overcome and to replace love with power. So we begin Holy Week. The next week, as we go to Easter weekend, um, we ask ourselves, "What are our ambitions?" What are our aspirations? We will face the same tests that Jesus faced, the same temptations, all three of them, and I'll just invite you over the next week to consider what those look like in your life and and how you might overcome them the way that Jesus did. Why does Jesus go through these temptations? Because our greatest temptations aren't bad things, but they're to misuse good things. And if Jesus doesn't conquer these temptations, he'll not be able to walk the opposition parade to Pilate or Caesar or any other leader. Here was Jesus' temptations. Production. To always have to achieve. To make more money. To provide. To do more. Take these stones and make them into bread. Do something now. Do, do, do. And Jesus instead said, No, we live uh, not by bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. We live by his presence. We live by what he speaks to us. We live by his uh, providence and protection in our lives as he gives us everything that we need. Popularity. Throw yourself off the temple. Do something spectacular. Be famous. Make sure everybody follows you. Make sure that everybody knows who you are. She goes, no, I'm not going to go for that either. Power, influence, getting your way. Jesus says, no, I want to worship God and serve. Jesus opts, instead of production and popularity and power, he opts for presence of God. He opts for the love of God, spoken into his life deeply to become his identity. And today he opts, instead of for power, for service, to give up everything that he has to serve and to love the people that he does love. Even if that means death and death on a cross. The life of a disciple, for us who would choose to consider that, uh, to walk in the way of Jesus, cannot become obsessed with productivity or popularity or power. Although we might get them. And they're not bad things. It's not bad to have money or to be productive. It's not bad to be popular and have, have people like us. It's not even bad to have power. The temptation is not bad things, but it's to misuse good things, not to build a life on them, not to, to, to imagine that a successful life is to have those things because we might not have any of them, but instead to steward them, steward them well. And so when you earn, it means to be generous, to give it away. In fact, for all of these temptations, uh, if you have any of these things, money, popularity, power. What's the antidote? How do, how do you overcome the temptation? For all of them, it's to give it away. It's what Jesus did. What if you have money? Give it away. Be generous for other people. But well, What if you have a platform or you have some kind of influence? Well, give it away for other people. Put other people in the spotlight. What if you have power? Then you give it away in an act of service for someone else. This is the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom. Why did he have to go through these temptations? Because on Palm Sunday, there would be a procession where Pilate would march in with a great display of riches and popularity and power. But what the world so desperately needed was another option, another alternative, a leader who would give his life away, give his production away, give his popularity away, give his power away. And Jesus is that Messiah. Our question if we would follow Jesus. As we prepare for Good Friday and Easter is which parade will we line up for and which leader will we follow? So Heavenly Father, we see Jesus uh, conquering the temptations that all of us need to conquer, need to deal with, need to wrestle with. Um, We thank you that Jesus uh, showed us what it looks like to love and to serve showed us what it looks like to live in your presence. He showed us what it looked like to have intimate and deep relationships. He showed it looked like to to give away power to serve the people that he loved. And so we say thank you. And this week as we come to Easter and as we reflect on the cross of Jesus, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, God, I pray that you would turn our hearts towards you always, that we would know your presence, that we would know your protection and your provision. God, that we would know the power of your Holy Spirit, that as we worship you is making us more like Jesus. And we pray that that would be what's happening in our community and here at this time of Easter. And we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.